watch your movies with your family, watch your movies with your friends. Uh, it is a powerful thing. And so, again, we kind of created this movie to be like the ultimate youth group movie. It's it's like a, a movie that teenagers will actually want to go watch, that families can go see together, like a, a church or a school would be comfortable showing. And uh, it's a fun movie to watch with a group of people. So the more people you get to go see it, uh, the more fun you'll have. Howdy. I'm Hannah Neuenschwander, a production lead at a soybean seed facility in central Illinois, and you're listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, we're going to interview filmmaker Sean Thiessen. There's a little bit of a backstory to having Sean on the podcast. First of all, you probably noticed I haven't done interviews with another person for quite a while. We had a few weeks where we were trying to get caught up on so much of the work that we were doing that I decided I would just do individual things that I put together. But now that we've come back and we're doing interviews, I wanted to do one with somebody that was really special. Somebody that had a point of view that you, the audience, always tells me you love. People that you would never encounter in your regular lives, but somebody that has a lot of interesting things to say. And that happens to be Sean. I met Sean a couple of years ago when I started Legacy Interviews. Every once in a while, there'd be some kind of editing problem or some kind of video challenge that I just didn't know how to get past. And I would call Sean, who was out in LA working in the film world, and I'd get his help on some things. A few months ago, I came to the conclusion that I needed to bring the game of legacy interviews up a little bit. So I invited him out for a week and I had him just do consulting. This was an amazing experience for me because Sean showed me things about the way our cameras work, the way we set things up, the way we make people feel when they're in the studio that really revolutionized the whole business. So I did what any good businessman would do. I said, Sean, what would it take for you to come out to St. Louis and work with Legacy Interviews? Now, he didn't say yes right away, but after some time, we came to the conclusion that this would be a great fit for a guy that writes movies. So you're about to watch an incredible interview with a guy that just wrote a movie that is going to be shown in theaters all across the country on October 10th. I am really excited for his movie called What Rhymes With Reason. But even more than that, I'm excited about this conversation. There's so few people in the world that can deconstruct a story, that can understand why does a story make you feel a certain way? Why do movies feel differently than books? This conversation with Sean is... One of the ones that I'm most excited about, and I'm so glad that we're back doing in-person interviews. So we're going to head to this interview. If you are interested in legacy interviews, having us sit down with your loved one to be able to tell their story, to be able to capture all of those meaningful moments, those things that really changed them, the things that they overcame, and the things they're most proud of, then go to LegacyInterviews.com to find out more. All right, without further ado, let's head to the interview with my friend, Sean Thiessen. Sean Thiessen, welcome to the podcast. I'm so stoked to be here. This is cool. <laughs> so what is the difference between an author that writes a book and a screenwriter? Oh, man. Well, I think the biggest difference, there, there are a lot, but the biggest one is probably that when you're writing a book, you're creating like the final output, right? Like people are going to read the book. Nobody reads the screenplay. The screenplay is is a document that's more like a blueprint to make a movie. Uh, so that's that's probably the key difference. It's just like 
people read books and people don't read screenplays. <laughs> then why does somebody ever get into doing screenplays? Because uh, you love movies. And, and screenplays are... So Alfred Hitchcock has a really fun quote. He's like, the most important part of... Or the three most important things in making a movie are the script, the script, and the script. Because uh, it really is like that is where everything begins. And when I say that people don't read screenplays, I just mean like audiences. But for the people making the movie, the screenplay is invaluable. So tell me about that. How did you even get into writing screenplays if nobody reads them? <laughs> so uh, I, I guess I've been like a storyteller, I guess my whole life, really. Like when I was a little kid, you know, just playing on the playground and playing with toys and stuff. There were always these like epics unfolding around me. And uh, I've always been a movie fan, too. Like movies are a huge point of connection for me and my family. And so we, we watch a ton of movies, always have. And that storytelling, I get that love for storytelling started out, I want to be a comic book artist. Um, I'm family friends with this guy. He's, his name's Javier Saltaris, and he drew like Ghost Rider in the 1990s. I mean, he's, he's drawn everybody, but he's been a comic book artist for years and grew up around him and like wanted to be a comic book artist, was drawing all the time. That interest evolved into animation. And then I found that animation was extremely tedious. And I was like, I don't think that <laughs> this is for me. And that evolved into uh, a love for live action film. And so I started writing scripts really as just like a means of ha just having something to shoot. Because that's, that's actually what I was more interested in was like directing and, and shooting things. And so then uh, I started writing stuff in high school. And I really liked it. But... I didn't ever feel like I knew what I was doing. I always felt like there was something missing. I was like, I'm sitting down to write this, but I don't know. It feels like I should be basing this off of something. And then whenever I got to college, I took a screenwriting course, introductory course that completely changed my life. It's like it it opened the world of screenwriting to me. And finally, I understood like structure and the, the purpose of structure, where it comes from. And uh, just it was so enlightening I fell in love with it. It's I really, really, really enjoy it. I think most people's perspective, or at least mine, would be that you go to write a screenplay, you write the character's name, colon, and then what they say. And maybe there's like <laughs> yeah. a line above it that says scene, you know, a dark seedy pub. Right. What else is there? No, you got it. That's pretty much it. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I mean, really, that that is kind of like the basics of it. The actual like page that you're looking at, you have your scene heading, uh, sometimes they call it a slug line, and it, it denotes where you are. So it starts with interior, exterior, and then where you are, and then the time of day, day or night. Um, and these are purely like functions for producers when they're breaking down the script, like what what does this scene need to be, <laughs> right? Uh, and for anyone else reading the script, like what, what is this? Um, and then from there, yeah, you have like your action description. So that's describing like what characters are doing, what you're seeing and hearing. And then you have dialogue when characters are speaking. And that's essentially it. I mean, there's there's supers and stuff like like whenever you superimpose a title or something, you know, there's there's like little stuff that comes up here and there that deviates from that. But basically that's that's it. And so when you talk about this structure, where does that come in? So structure this is a, a huge conversation <laughs> and people, people talk about this, people write books about this. Right. And like the, the most common thing that we're used to talking about probably is like three act structure. Like probably most people have heard of that. Um, 
And that's what most like Hollywood movies are. It's just beginning, middle and end. And like there, there are different ways to do structure. And to me, like I'm a proponent of structure is born out of character and like the way that a character uh, is needs to get from point A to point B. Basically, like you have a character who they, they believe one thing at the beginning of the movie and by the end they're going to believe something different or they're not and you're going to see what the effect of them not changing was, right? And so whether it really is stories are about change, right? And whether that change is good or bad, you know, it just depends. But um, over the course of that change, you have, uh, it'd probably be easier if I use like an example. Um, so you have a movie like, like Shrek, Right. Shrek is like a very well-structured movie. Right. So you have Shrek who at the beginning, all he wants is to live in his swamp and he doesn't want to be around anybody else. Um, But then he is forced into a situation where in order to have that goal, like his swamp gets invaded. Right. By all these creatures, uh, fairy tale creatures, because they've been kicked out of their homes. So in order for him to get what he wants, his swamp back, he has to. Uh, go on this journey that brings him out of his swamp. And the whole time, he's sort of like caught in the tension between like wanting to just be by himself in his swamp and like opening his heart up to like friendships and love. And by the end of what you'd probably call like the second act, he gets his swamp back, but he's not happy. And so now he has to make a choice. Do, do Am I going to hold on to like what I thought that I wanted or am I going to make a choice that brings me into like a new new normal, I guess? I think that change is the thing that makes us all so addicted to stories, right? Like totally. we want to yeah, know, yeah. you know, like, oh, what, what were they faced with? Like, and then how can I apply whatever that change is to me? And would I, do I agree with their decisions? Would I have done the same thing? Yeah. Did I fail in this way as well? Mm-hmm. I think so too. It's, yeah, it's empathy, right? It's, it's stories watching movies, reading books or whatever. It's it's an exploration of other people, uh, but it's also an exploration of ourselves. It's like wish fulfillment. Uh, like I, I love the Harry Potter movies because especially as, as you go and he gets older and the situations become darker, you're like, could I do that? Like, could, could I be as brave as Harry, <laughs> you know? And like you start relating that to your own life. And uh, so like it's, it's it's escapism, you know, but it's also like, something you can carry into reality, which I think is cool. Yeah, and there's also something like with Harry Potter is a good example. He was like this forgotten child and like, you know, somebody came and took him to where he rightfully belonged and that he was yeah. special. That's something that every little kid kind of feels. Right? <laughs> yeah, like, I'm right. special, right? <laughs> right? Like maybe those aren't my parents and maybe maybe if somebody really knew and could train me in how to be more special to be this wizard that I know is inside of me. Mm-hmm. And that, but it's funny because it's so far from reality and yet it's like totally tied into the connection with being human, being like who yeah, we are. Absolutely. And, and I kind of think this is just how I think about it with stuff like Harry Potter, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, these things have created these like really extravagant worlds that are so unlike our own. They're they're more than ours, right? Um, I think that there's a draw to that for the same reason that we have like a draw to ideas of like religion. You know, it's it's this sense that there is like this world beyond our own that like where we're living here on earth, like isn't good enough. <laughs> We're like longing for this other 
sort of life. Um, and I think that stuff like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, like kind of taps into that and sort of gives us a glimpse of like a reality that's like higher than our own. What do you think is different about watching a movie versus reading a book? With a book, of course, like you're, you're imagining everything in your head. So you get to interpret the story that's being laid out. With a movie, that story is kind of being interpreted for you. There's still interpretation to do, but like, it's a it's a much more like like physical experience, right? It's like you can see it, you can hear it. I, to me, it's more visceral, and uh, it's more sensory than reading a book is, um, which I really really like. I, I just think that there's like such power in it, and it's also like it doesn't have to be, but like the cinema is a communal experience, and like you can have a book club or you can like read aloud to, to other people, I guess, to have a communal experience, but it's not the same. And uh, by the way, I love books and I love reading. <laughs> I think that, that that's awesome. But uh, that to me is, is kind of the difference. Um, you're, you're unique in that um, many times I think people put themselves in the position where they're like, oh, I like books better. I like the imagination part of it. Yeah. But you like the creation part of of movies in a in a way that gives it's made me respect movies more. Because it's very easy to be like, oh, I'd rather have the dance with the author and you know my imagination participating in all of this. I get to create the rolling green grass. Yeah. But the but when I watched movies with you, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, you're right. Somebody had to make every single one of those decisions. There's uh-huh. literally no accidents in here. Right. Yeah. And so like, you know, reading a book and getting to sort of create all of that in your head is a really like wonderful and rich experience. But like seeing people express themselves and like express their voices and their visions in such, because you're right, everything that you see on screen is a choice, uh, whether it's by the director, or by the actor, or by the production designer, the cinematographer, it's a culmination of all these different people's choices, expressing themselves and expressing the story and their point of view about the world. And I think that that's cool too, you know, that that's a different kind of experience, but it's a valuable one. So you're one of the rare people that goes from like, I wanna create movies with my friends to actually creating a movie. Mm -hmm. What does it take to get a movie made in today's day and age? Boy, that's a really big question. I don't even know if I'm qualified to answer it (laughs) just because like, I so I wrote the movie that I have coming out. It's called What Rhymes with Reason. Uh, comes out on October tenth. <laughs> no, but uh, I wrote the screenplay for it. Uh, so so from that perspective, it just takes like the will <laughs> to like push through because like writing a feature length movie is hard. Uh, it's that's a lot of pages to get through. Um, the script for What Rhymes With Reason was, I think, right at about 100. But we wrote so many drafts. And it's not just about, like, writing those 100 pages. It's about all the work that you do beforehand, like, figuring out, like, who are these characters? And, like, where is this story going? And, like, what are we saying here? And, you know, going through the iterations. So I think that, like, to to really get it done, get the screenplay done, it just takes, like, a, a will to do it. And I also had... Um, so my uncle, his name's Kyle Roberts, he directed the movie. Um, and we've been making films together since I was a kid. 
which is super cool. And then it's just evolved and uh, over time. But uh, I had him too to like bounce ideas off of, and we sort of like developed it together, uh, which was super helpful. And he was like kind of holding me accountable to <laughs> uh, to to hit deadlines and things like that. When it comes to actually like making the movie, like for a feature film, there's no getting around, like you have to spend money on it, right? Like you have to, you have to get money. Movies are really expensive to make because you have to pay tons of people to help you make it. So as far as like actually raising the money, putting together like a business plan for a movie and, and all of that kind of stuff, I was sort of at arm's length from all of that. That wasn't really my job. That wasn't my role. Um, other people were doing that. So I can't offer as much insight into that as I wish I could. <laughs> but uh, but you do have the insight of like, I wrote an idea down on pieces of paper and yeah. then eventually <clears throat> it became like a full on movie where people are doing acting in Oklahoma yeah. and they're, <laughs> you know, on an adventure and soundtracks are laid down and movie posters and previews and, you know, all mm -hmm. of the things going around it. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like a mind boggling <laughs> thing because like when you're writing, you're, you're by yourself in your room and you're just like coming up with these ideas and you're like, I think this is cool. I think this works. But then whenever you actually get there and, and you're going to bring it to life, people have to bring it to life. Like every single, this was a really valuable lesson that I learned because I was fortunate that I got to be on set. And I also, I doubled not only as like the writer on set, but as the script supervisor this was a very independent movie. <laughs> so what are these roles? So the, the script supervisor is basically, they're keeping track of continuity. So, so they're, they're watching the monitor, right, as everything is being filmed. They're, they're going through each page of the script, like as it's being filmed, making sure that all of the needs of the script are being fulfilled. We're not skipping any lines. We're not missing any key details. And they're also keeping track of like, performances and like even the way that like people's hair is laying and makeup and clothes and all this stuff um props are you know arranged around the set like making sure all of those things are consistent from take to take from shot to shot right because like whenever you shoot a scene you do the same scene like several times to get what they call coverage so you have like you know if we're doing a scene together we'll shoot it where we shoot your lines and then we break it down and we move the camera and we shoot it with my lines. That was <laughs> that was challenging. One, because like I'd never like formally done that role before. And also I was so I was so wrapped up in like how are the performances turning out, you know, and and keeping track of like the storytelling, because I was so involved, of course, in the story that some of the technical stuff, it was hard to like do both at the same time. Um, but I think we we pulled it off. There's not uh there's not a ton of egregious continuity errors in the final cut, so I think we, we made it out okay. And so on the on the set, you have actors and all these people, and you hear this like the action. Mm -hmm. What all is going on behind the scenes that if you're not making a movie, you don't you don't understand? Hey, you need a person that does this thing. <laughs> oh, that's a fun question. Well, the the first thing to realize is like. Even in like the quietest, most intimate scene between two people, there are tons of people standing all around them. <laughs> and like it seems like an empty house, but it's not. It's full of people. 
they're they're somewhere around, right? Because it takes a village to to make a movie. Makeup and hair and wardrobe, like these things, you shouldn't notice them, and like you shouldn't really notice the cinematography or the editing because you're wrapped up in the story. But like someone, like going back to that thing about choices and making decisions, like someone is making choices about every single little thing, like every shirt that everyone is wearing in the movie and like the way everyone's hair is styled and like, do they have dirt on their face? How much, you know, does this, the amount of dirt on their face change over time? And it's like, people are keeping track of that. And like, I was keeping track of some of that, but I have to shout out to like the makeup and hair and wardrobe departments because like they were all really, really good about keeping track of their own continuity and uh, they had all of that, like how how dirty people are supposed to be and stuff mapped out across the movie. It's crazy. So let's talk about it. Why are people getting dirty in your movie? Tell, tell me about the, <laughs> What Rhymes okay. With Reason. Yeah, that was a great segue. So What Rhymes With Reason is a coming of age adventure film about this kid named Jesse Brandt, uh, who he's a high school senior and he has a tragedy in his life that sends him and his friends on this quest into the Oklahoma wilderness to find this mythical location. And this quest was something that his dad left for him. And uh, so as they're going out and they're doing all this like adventure-y stuff, this like very Goonies-esque type of adventure, you're also dealing with uh, grief and depression and anxiety. Uh, So talking about Kyle, the director, he's had this vision for a long time to make this movie about essentially like teenage mental health. Like he, he we're both big fans of teen movies like The Breakfast Club, big John Hughes fans, uh, like stuff like that from the 80s. And so there's a lot of that influence in there, but we wanted to make something that was timeless and timely. Uh, something that addresses like social media, something that addresses the, the epidemic of depression and anxiety that especially teenagers are going through today because of this changing world that we're living in. People are so inundated with technology and comparison and um, 24-hour news cycles and all of these like existential threats around us. So uh, yeah, that, that was the goal is to like make a movie that is fun and fun to watch and accessible, but also does dig into some of these heavier themes because again, going back to stuff like The Breakfast Club, that's what that movie is to me. Is like that movie is a blast to watch. It's so fun. It's funny. It's relatable. It's goofy, but it has some very real moments. You know, we were talking about uh, Brian, the Anthony Michael Hall's character, is is talking about like he was contemplating killing himself. You know, in The Breakfast Club. Yeah, you don't think about that, do you? Right, but You're like right. that's a part of that movie. And, and that's a part of our movie, too, is the main character, Jesse, uh, wrestling with suicidal thoughts. And, but we wanted to treat that in a way that was, that was cinematic. So, so when I say that, I mean that was, that was visual, but not in a, not in a, uh, in a graphic way at all. We, we wanted something that like was accessible to younger people where we're, we're talking about this, but we're not doing it in such a graphic way that it's going to be violent or... Or, or ham-fisted, right? Yeah, like, I can right. think of all those silly, like, after-school specials where, like, right. people are overwrought or you think of the Saved by the Bell dealing with drug addiction. It was yeah. so ham-fisted that it was a joke, right? It right, was right, like, right. 
Yes. And so Kyle uses this expression a lot. He wants to earn the right to be heard specifically from, from teenagers or by teenagers, I guess. And so, um, that's, that was our goal the whole time is like, how do we be real, but still be approachable and, uh, and not so dark, you know, that like parents are afraid to let their kids watch this movie. And so, uh, an interesting thing about that, uh, we got rated by the Motion Picture Association. The movie is PG-13 for thematic content because it goes there, right? Um, and did you know going in, like, were you like, we're shooting for a PG-13? Like, how does no. this work? No. Well, so, I don't know. We were kind of conflicted about it, honestly, because I really thought the movie was going to be PG. To me, it it plays like a PG movie. But I guess because, you know, it, it brings up some of those heavier topics, um, they decided unanimously that it was going to be PG-13. So we were kind of surprised and we were like, oh man, is this going to turn people off? Is this going to make parents afraid to let their kids see it or take their kids? Um, the movie also has like, we, we can get into this in a second, but the movie has like a little bit of, of like a faith angle on it. And so we're, we're like, are churches and youth groups going to be afraid to, to bring their congregations or youth groups to the movie because it's PG-13? But we got approved by, um, there's this organization, dove.org. I don't know if you're familiar with this. I, I grew up like watching Jurassic Park and The Matrix and stuff when I was a little kid. So my parents were not <laughs> afraid of that sort of thing. But um, their My parents definitely were. Like they yeah, really, they, right. that was something that was important. Well, and I'm realizing more and more that like my experience is not the norm. That like a lot of parents are like, we really want to monitor what our what our especially young kids are watching. So dove.org, they like, they give their like stamp of approval to things. Um, and they gave a stamp of approval to what rhymes with reason for, for 12 plus, but we really think 10 plus is, is, is appropriate. Uh, but what that- is the process? So like, let's go back and, and if somebody <clears throat> is applying for a PG that, so, so people sit around and they watch it and they like have a scorecard or like how, do, how do these movies get rated? Yeah. That's the, the motion picture association. So like every time you watch a movie trailer, you know, that green banner pops up. It's like, uh, this, this preview has been approved for all audiences or some audiences, <laughs> mature audiences, you know, whatever. Uh, all that's done by the, the Motion Picture Association, MPA. And uh, yeah, they, they rate movies. So I don't know what that process and exactly And you send it off like, and then they like come back to you and they're like, all right, mm-hmm. this is what it is. Mm-hmm. And presumably you can appeal and... And you can, yeah, but the the choice on ours was unanimous, so I, I don't think we could even appeal it. Maybe they did appeal it. I, I don't remember, but in so any case, it didn't let's work. talk about the, <laughs> the faith angle because, like, yeah. you know, my initial thing is like, oh no, this is going to be a Christian movie, Same. and not because I'm like <laughs> anti-Christian, but because right. oftentimes those subjects are handled really ham-fistedly, right? right? Where where you're like, all right, or or the movies just aren't done well, right? Like they're just like not good movies yeah yeah i so i, I want to disclaim what i'm gonna say here everything has its place uh j- there are a lot of movies i agree with you like that that i do not care for personally it, it doesn't speak to me there are some people who love that stuff and so teach their own but <laughs> that said uh i i set out kyle and i both set out to make the movie that like to me was it's like the movie that I wanted when I was in high school. 
So we were kind of talking about this the other day, but I'm a huge fan of the band Switchfoot. And uh, they're playing in St. Louis in a few days, actually. I'm I didn't know that. Trying to go see them. Yeah. I would probably go to that. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about that later. But anyway, so Switchfoot, I, I've always loved them uh, because they were like not a Christian band, but like a band of Christians. And so their, their uh, faith like came through in their music, but so did their doubt. They were like very real. All their music is very honest, but it's uplifting too. And it's really positive and, and empowering, but it's not afraid to ask hard questions. And it's not really trying to like fit in a in a box. And I think that like for them, that has been the challenge like throughout their entire career. They've talked about that. They're like, when, when they sign to a major label, they're like, people don't know where to put us. They're like, do we go play at these Christian festivals? Like, I don't feel like that's who we are exactly, but that's where people want to put us. And um, so I wanted to make like the switch foot of movies, basically. Like that was kind of my goal was I want something that is coming from that perspective, but isn't so in your face about it or like has has this agenda about it. It's just natural in it because that's the perspective that the story is coming from. So that was kind of like my approach to it. And we sort of encountered the same, like the switch foot problem. We sort of encountered that when we were trying to raise money for the movie. So you're like, people are like, what is this? And Kyle finally came up with describing it as faith adjacent <laughs> because like it has elements of faith in it. It is coming from that perspective. It is positive. It is uplifting and life affirming, but it's not a, uh, you know, we're, we're going to pray our problems away kind of movie. And so uh, people, people had a hard time grasping like, what is this movie? You know, when we're talking to investors, I mean, like, what what is this? Where does this belong? But it's interesting now that the movie is made, whenever we approach people about it who, who actually watch the movie and people who enjoy it, they're like, this is a really underserved market. Not, not the faith market necessarily, but like the teen faith market. And like something that is honest like this and like really is geared toward the youth. <laughs> I sound... Uh, like an old guy calling them the youths, but but really like aim toward aim toward the youth of today that is coming from a faith perspective that isn't like super duper cheesy. And like our movie has some cheese, but I like to think that it's like the cheesy on purpose that's fun to watch, not the like I'm cringing at how cheesy this is. Uh, hopefully, but yeah, that that was kind of our journey there. It's, it's a the, the Christian angle is such an interesting one. My audience, like I hear from my audience all the time, this is a very Christian. There's a lot of people that have strong faith, but yeah. when you start talking about that with general people, right, mm-hmm. you'll get warnings about like, hey, just don't don't just don't bring that up. Yeah, or, I was talking to my yeah. buddy the other day, Sean Newman, who has this podcast, and he's exploring his faith. So he's been interviewing all kinds of ministers and people that just have different backgrounds. And he's like, I've run on people that have been banned from from YouTube, people that have been like are under prosecution by the Canadian government, maybe go to prison for years and years. (laughs) Nobody complains that I bring them on, but I bring a Christian on and people are like, hey, can you knock that off? I can't share this with my friends if I if you if you do this. And so it's it's a really interesting thing. (laughs) And I think there's like um, because I know you, I'm more like, "Ah, I'm sure whatever it'll be is fine. But there is that kind of like, 
what am I getting myself into, right? Am totally. I going to go to a movie and be proselytized? Yeah, right. <laughs> that's the perfect word for it. Um, that has been like, that's the uphill battle that we're climbing. But I will say, so we premiered the movie in June at Dead Center Film Festival in Oklahoma City and got comments from several people who were not Christians, not people of faith or whatever, who were like, hey, I, I really liked the movie. Those elements like were there. I, I could tell that they were there, but I didn't feel like I was being preached to. And they're like, I really appreciated that. And I was like, great, that was the goal the whole time. Because <laughs> of course that's gonna be there, but like, I'm not a preacher and that's not what I'm here to do. I, I didn't wanna make a cinematic sermon. You know, That's not what anybody here wanted to do. We wanted to actually tell a story and tell a story that, one of the things about stories that are so great to me is like, it you're gonna bring yourself to it. When, it, when a good story, a good story invites you to bring yourself to it and bring your own life experience to it and relate to it and engage with it and draw your own conclusions about it. And so we didn't want to wrap everything up in this like totally neat bow where it's like, well, everyone's happy now. It's like, there is sort of like a bittersweetness to the ending of the movie, but that's life, right? And like, we didn't want to shy away from life. That like hard things happen and like they can continue to be difficult for a long time. Like if you experience a loss, even if you're a teenager, you know, even if you're like, you're too young for it, but it comes for you anyway, that happens and that can hurt and that can hurt for a long time. But whenever you have a community of people around you and uh, you, you face it, it can get better in time. And like that, that was kind of the, I guess what we were trying to say with it. So. You know, I was uh, watching Almost Famous not that long ago. It's one of my Great favorite movie. favorite movies, and the <laughs> yeah. character played by um, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? uh -huh. So yeah, he's yeah. in that movie. He just has these like little bit parts, but um, in one of them, he says like, "Oh man, the artists are all the people that have you know been hurt, and we're not cool. We we have to suffer, and mm -hmm. that's why we're able to create this art." What suffering have you uh, endured that's enabled you to create great art? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, well, I don't know. I, I have lived a, a, a privileged life. Uh, I have. I'm really thankful for that. But so the hardships, I guess. Um, my, my parents got divorced whenever I was 16. And that was like a... That was a bombshell for sure. Like that, that was a big one. That really, um, that made an impact. That's probably the most difficult thing that I've ever gone through was uh, coming to terms with that. And, uh, you know, I think that, so I, I haven't, I have not personally experienced like bouts of, like suicidal thoughts or anything like that. Uh, n never, never anything that was like a serious consideration of something like that. Um, but I know people that have, and like we we did some interviews with lots of people from different walks of life about different mental health struggles, and that was really enlightening to try and like bring some truth and reality to the story that we were telling, to the characters in it. Uh, I did. A couple of years ago, experienced a panic attack, 
and is the first one ever. And and I'm in like in my late 20s at this point and I'm having my first panic attack. And that was like a really weird, I didn't know what was happening. I was like crying uncontrollably and like hyperventilating and I like get under control for a second and then it would just come back. And I was like, what is going on? And uh, that that was terrible. I never want that to happen again. <laughs> but it was also insightful. It was like, now I know what this is. And so it happens to a character in our movie. And so writing that scene and, and doing the scene on the day and the, the actress, Katie, who, who does it is unbelievable. Uh, but in, in crafting that moment, I had like the context of that experience. Um, and so, yeah. Man, panic attacks, like, there there have been a couple of times, so I, I had a very close friend in graduate school have uh, several of them. Mm-hmm. And if somebody had told me about them, I'd have been like, yeah, okay, just like get yourself together, man. Right. Like just, just, yeah. just stop, right? Yep. But like I watched them and this dude was a hard dude. He was mm-hmm. like not, he was a serious man. And uh, when he was having that panic attack, he was indistinguishable from him having a massive heart attack. Yeah. And like the sweat was real, the breathing was real, the like clutching yourself. And I see this increasing in society. And and to the extent that you're like, hey, this is um, a, a subject we need to cover in a movie because it's yeah. so ubiquitous. And most of the teens that are watching movies don't have th- this, right? The things they're being exposed to, to have somebody recognize it in a, in a real and authentic way. Mm-hmm. What do you think is going on in culture that is making this happen more frequently? Well, uh, it's, <laughs> it's really easy to point fingers at social media. And I don't think that's totally off base. I don't think that social media is like the devil or anything. <laughs> I don't think it's inher- inherently bad, but I think that, it offers an opportunity for for young people, really anybody, to like constantly be comparing themselves to others, uh, which I don't think is healthy. Like, com- and you can do that at high school or whatever, but th- this is on a whole other level. And you're getting like the you know the highlight reels of people's lives that you're, and you're like, well, why am I not, you know, on vacation in Mexico? Like, why don't I have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or? You know, why don't I have a cute dog like <laughs> whatever, you know, and why aren't I in that good a shape, you know? And um, so so that I think has an effect. I also think that like the way that we interact with social media, like actually affects the, the chemistry in our brains, like dopamine overload. Right. And like throwing off your dopamine baseline. Uh, I think that probably a lot of kids who are depressed like that is part of it. That's a probably a big part of it. And it's really, really hard to break out of those cycles, especially like, you know, when you're, it's hard as an adult to break out of the social media cycle if you're in it. But as a kid, when it's like, I mean, I remember when I was a teenager and like all my friends were getting cell phones and I didn't have one. It's like, I don't even know what I'm going to do with a cell phone, but I need one. And like, you know, same with like fashion, like all these kids are wearing these cool clothes and I'm in these rags. Like I need those clothes so that I can fit in. Right. It's like that, that sense of identity still being formed and and you're trying to find ways to fit in. And so like if all your friends are on social media, 
all your friends are, you know, Snapchat and Instagram and TikTok and all this stuff, and you don't have it, like you're gonna you're gonna feel alienated, even if you're actually healthier <laughs> for it. You know what I mean? Well, and so. when I talk with, da- you know, for dads all the time, I'm talking about parenting. And one of my questions, I think everybody asks this, like, well, when are you giving the kids a cell phone? How's that all going? Yeah. And almost universally, they say the same thing, which is, well, all the other kids had them. And by us keeping them away from our kids, then they were left out of things. Right. And it's funny because somebody has to be the first one to give their kids this cell phone. Mm-hmm. But But, like, the truth is, like, the parents are saying, I have empathy for my child or I I don't want them to be left out. Yeah. And and like it seems like we're by by giving kids access to social media and cell phones, it's like creating a pipe that's going into the Garden of Eden where you should be like slowly walking towards the tree of good and evil where you're kind of beginning to understand. But social media like just plunks that thing right in there and you can mm. see the whole world and compare yourself to other people's little childhood of Garden of Edens. It's, it's interesting. A, it's a really complicated thing. It is. And, and like I'm definitely not casting any judgment. Well, you, you know, you and I do legacy interviews together. And yeah. one of the questions that I ask people all the time is like, what was one of the most difficult lessons to learn that was the most valuable to know? Yeah. And one of the things that I've heard many, many times over, particularly from older women, was I wish it hadn't taken me so long to not care what other people thought of me. Mm-hmm. But these are people that are like 55, 60, 70, 80 years old, yeah. right? And they're talking about how they just recently overcame, uh, you know, the the need to make it so other people thought well of them and, and that they, you know, were in the right circles or whatever that is. Yeah. And you're talking about this growing mind that's yeah. new. It's got to be so overwhelming. When you're a teenager, it's like all your nerve endings are exposed. <laughs> I mean, everything just hits harder, right? And so, yeah, including this and, and social media is just, it's it's making it tough. But at the same time, you know, we're growing, we're growing up in a world, or they're growing up in a world where technology is more prevalent just in every walk of life. And so, like, uh, technological literacy, digital literacy is important. And so, like, they need to know how to use devices and things like that. And, like, social media, again, I don't think it's an inherently bad thing. It's a tool that a lot of people use for great things, like for their businesses or for their their causes or whatever. So it's it's really tricky. It's really tricky. So speaking of technology, uh, ever since you've come out to do legacy interviews, I've been asking you for updates on something that I think has been really important in your world. But in my world, if I didn't know you, I would know literally nothing at all about the writer's strike. <laughs> ah, so yes. The tell, writer's me, strike. tell me about the writer's strike. Uh, okay, well, let me preface this all by saying, like, I... I am not a member of the Writers Guild of America. Um, I, I do hope to be one day. That's the goal. But I have been following it because I know people that are. And uh, again, it's like that's my that's my world, right? So the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, went on strike at the beginning of May. The strike is against uh, an organization called the AMPTP. Basically, it's like a, the council of movie studios in Hollywood, right? So it's... It's like Disney and Universal and Warner Brothers and Netflix and Paramount and 
couple others. Uh, I think maybe Amazon and Apple are in there now too, because <clears throat> they're movie studios now, <laughs> uh, which is crazy. But so the the strike is basically it's just total work stoppage. Writers uh, they they're not writing any projects for these studios, and they're not promoting any projects for these studios. Um, and then SAG-AFTRA, the Actors Guild, went on strike like a month later or a month and a half later. Um, and the issues for both guilds are a little bit different, but there's some overlap. One of the big ones for both is artificial intelligence. So actors, I think, are are even more concerned about it because uh, there, there was like a legitimate proposal from the AMPTP that they would like have the ability to scan background actors' faces when they came on to set for a day of work and then, like, own and use that their likeness, like, in perpetuity without compensation. Meaning if you were in, like, the stands during the Batman movie, yeah. then they could grab your face and put it at you in a rodeo and put you in yep. some other scene or... Yep. Okay. Exactly. And people are just like, what the heck? Like, there are people that make their livings as background actors. <laughs> They're like, hold on, what? Uh, but I bet the the issue comes up for even stars, too, or, like, actors who have already passed away. It's like, can we just, like, recreate them in movies? Those are people who are making a living off of their likeness. For writers, it's more about, like, I don't know. There are lots of different ways to use AI. I don't think AI can write a feature-length screenplay right now. It might get to the point where it can. I don't know that it will ever be able to do as good a job of a person, but that's another conversation. But, uh, you know, it can be used to, like, develop concepts and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so it's like, we just need to create some guidelines here. Like, how how are we going to regulate this um, in a way that makes sense, that protects artists? Because, like... It's, these movie studios, really, they're they're just huge corporations. They're they're multinational conglomerates. All they care about really is the bottom line at the end of the day. And I don't, I don't know. This is kind of this is my perspective, but it just feels like they they'll they'll do whatever they can to like save money, and they'll even if that means like abusing people or taking advantage of people. And you've been seeing that trend, like. And the other big part of this is that when the contracts were all written up. They were set up for an age where you made a movie and it went into movie theaters and then it went on to DVDs yeah. and, you know, maybe played on Cinemax or HBO. Mm-hmm. But now there's all these movies being made and they go into, they maybe go into movie theaters and then they go streaming. Yeah. So for writers, streaming is the other like big thing. Like you said, it's totally disrupted the model for how movies are made and distributed today. So... Residual pay, and this this is true of movies, but it's especially true uh, for television writers. Um, like it used to be, like if you're a writer for Friends, right, right. You're, you're still getting money from those episodes of Friends that you wrote because they continue to be played, right? And so, like that's how you continue to earn a living in your downtime, like like when you're between, because you're a freelancer, right? So when you're between seasons or you're between shows, like you can continue to get paychecks from the work that is is still being shown out there, right? Which I think makes sense. Um, but with streaming, like there's they're not transparent about those numbers, and like the residual deals are different and they're much worse. And so like it's much less of a meritocracy. 
So like if you write an episode of like Stranger Things or Wednesday or like, you know, one of these like mega hits that uh, everyone in the world is watching on Netflix, you're not necessarily being compensated uh, in the way that in the way that you should. Like you're not being paid more because your work was popular. And so like that <laughs> that really like de-incentivizes good work, first of all. Um but it also is like, well, these streamers are clearly making loads of money from these projects. So, like, where's this breakdown happening? Like, where are you just keeping that money for yourself? Like, how, how is this? This doesn't seem right. And this is not how things have been done for, like, decades, right? So that's part of the problem there. The WJ is also talking about, like, um, minimum staffing requirements for shows and minimum um, like work periods for shows. So like, cause with streaming, a lot of times, almost all the time, the seasons are shorter than they were back in like the, the network broadcast days uh, where it used to be like 24 episodes a season for every show. It's not really like that anymore. So writers don't get to write as many episodes. They just don't stick around as long. And so they're like, that we're not making as much money and and then we go into this like period where this in-between period and we're still not making as much money because the residuals are worse so we can't support ourselves but so it's funny because the strike's been going on it's not like when airline pilots strike and the planes stop flying right like everybody's still been watching their streaming shows that the tv is still running so when does this start to like squeeze people well, it's already starting. Um, we, you know, we don't really know. We don't have a good look at like the studios books, right? We don't know <laughs> how long they can last. I, I know like I have a lot of friends in Los Angeles who are not working and it's hard. Um, I think the WGA is trying to appeal to the state of California to allow striking workers to get uh, unemployment benefits. I just read something about this. Um, but I think that like we're really gonna feel it this fall. Like you, you, every day, you're seeing like more movies getting pushed because actors aren't around to promote them. Yeah, they're not even allowed to do anything because they're on strike. So normally they'd mm-hmm. be going to movie premieres and sitting right. on panels and right. doing interviews with media and doing like the Jimmy Fallon like late night thing. But those shows aren't running either. So like we're not gonna be getting new episodes of those kinds of shows. Um, like the fall season, uh, like if you are someone who still watches like any network TV shows, like they just won't be there in the fall. Um, Probably starting now, now that it's after Labor Day. So oh, yeah, I guess it is the fall just about, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, we're already feeling that. Um, it's crazy. Expect to see a lot more reality TV shows in the coming months. Yeah, there'll be a whole bunch of American Ninja Warrior and... Mm-hmm. And uh, I stranded my my wife on a beach, and we'll see if she was faithful kind of shows. Yeah, right, which is, I don't really even want to get into that. <laughs> I don't have a high opinion of reality TV. I, I did some work in reality TV when I was in L.A., and I was like, uh, I just, I don't know, felt kind of grimy being there. So speaking of L.A., You were living out in L.A. Whenever you hear it talked about on Joe Rogan or any of these shows, they're all like, L.A. is burning down. It's horrible. (laughs) What is it? What what was it like out there? I really like Los Angeles. 
personally. I like I enjoyed living there a lot, but it's it's like anywhere like it has pros and cons, and the cons of LA are the cost of living. Uh, it's it's very crowded, and in the film industry, like it's it's very saturated market market, and I think too like people kind of have this image of Hollywood in their heads. And I think it's an outdated image. That was kind of my experience. I, I miss it. I miss my friends there probably more than anything. Uh, I don't. I don't miss the traffic. I don't miss how much my rent was. Um, and what are your friends saying about how life is now that all this stuff has come to a grinding halt with the strikes? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. Like, like some of my friends uh, have been able to to get by still. Like some of them. You know, they found other types of day jobs. Um, I have a friend who's like a very successful makeup artist, but she does like model modeling shoots and stuff like that. So she's not super reliant on film. But uh, yeah, it's tough. Like I, I have a few friends who work in writers' rooms who just not working, not getting paid. It's tough. And uh, you came out to St. Louis from L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, to join Legacy Interviews. So, like, uh, what has your experience been like? How have you? How, first of all, why did you do it? And uh, what have you found since you came here? It's been really good. You know, working working for Legacy Interviews is like definitely the the opportunity that I needed that I, that I do need <laughs> right now. It's it's so cool to hear the stories that I get to hear. I really enjoy that. Um, it's great. So my family is from Springfield, Missouri. So I'm only three hours away from them now instead of like halfway across the country, (laughs) which is great. I I really enjoy that. I enjoy being in a city that is like St. Louis feels, well, it's way less crowded for one, but it's also, it feels like hungrier in a way. I think. Oh, this is super interesting. I feel this way about uh, Oklahoma City as well, which is where we shot What Rhymes with Reason, and these these cities have chips on their shoulders. I think because they they tend to get overlooked by the quote unquote coastal elites. (laughs) You know what I mean? And there's a little bit of like a a chip on the shoulder. Like that's cool. That's a different kind of energy. Um, There's a ton of energy in LA too. Uh, but it's a different kind of energy. And this is cool. Like, it feels like there's there's building happening here. Uh, Missouri recently passed a uh, film tax incentive, tax credit. So basically, that's why, like, a lot lots of movies shoot in California, in Atlanta, like in the state of Georgia. That's why they shot Ozark in Georgia. and uh, Yes, uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah, if you've ever wondered, like, well, why wouldn't they just shoot it where it's set? It's because Georgia has an incredible tax incentive program. So it's like every dollar that you spend in Georgia on, like, Georgia labor, um, you get however many cents on the dollar back from the state. And there's Georgia is exceptional in that there's no cap on it. That's why like all the Marvel movies and stuff shoot there because they can spend like millions and millions of dollars and, and get that tax advantage. Seems to be working out for them, I guess. So, uh, But it's cool. So Missouri has one now. It's not as extravagant or lavish as Georgia's, but it exists again. So that's exciting. Hopefully like more production starts coming to Missouri. What's it like being, you know, your late 20s, you're moved to a new city, how do you how do you find new friends? How do you like integrate into this new place? 
I don't know. I don't have any friends. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I have lots of friends that don't live in St. Louis. And uh, I have a few that do. And so just, you know, building those relationships and uh, just trying to get out when I can, I guess. But I stay pretty busy. I work a lot. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, we every all the legacy interviews are confidential. But you do get to, like, because you're editing these people telling their life stories. Mm-hmm. What have you gotten to see from, like, a backed-up view of, of – uh, human nature, what people care about. Hmm. It's interesting to see what's the same for people, but also what's different. People do have different values, but almost everybody says that their family is the most important thing. And that like when they, when they look at their life in, in retrospect, their family is their greatest achievement. And like, that is, uh, that is like the defining factor of their lives. And I think for me, like, I, I don't, like I mentioned before, I don't have a family yet. And so, like, I'm very focused on my career and, like, making good work. And, like, that is what I want to be known for. That's what I want my legacy to be at this stage in my life. But, you know, if I ever have a family, then it's, like, it's hard to imagine, I guess, Anything superseding my career right now, anything like superseding um, making movies and like dying with like an impressive filmography. Like, <laughs> maybe that sounds like kind of silly, but like that's what I want right now. And to think that like one day that's going to change and that's not going to be the number one priority anymore is is wild. And like, obviously I have, I do have my family, I have my parents and I have my siblings and extended family and I love them and I'm close to them. Uh, but I don't know. I just think it's different. Probably once you have kids. Yeah. There's something like, I mean, there's, it's not a mistake that people describe it as a family tree. Cause I was the exact same way. Right. When, when the leaves are coming off the very tip of me, you know, mm-hmm. that's like your career. But when you add a branch on or two branches on, and now all of a sudden you're like, Oh, okay. My career, at least for me, is in part a way for me to move resources out to these little ones because the 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 those branches growing is the thing that I care about. Huh. And like you can feel it from like the internal side of it. And I agree, you know, if if uh it would be almost painful to do legacy interview interviewing if you didn't have family as either something that you appreciated was really valuable or you have it yourself because you see these people, they're wildly successful in their lives or they've done really interesting things. Even people Mm -hmm. that don't think they've done really interesting or important things, they're talking about their lives and you're like, oh my gosh, look at all this stuff you accomplished. They still come right back to you. And we were so worried about our kids and, Mm -hmm. you know, in this circumstance, or we were so you know, oh, I remember when they would just laugh and laugh and laugh at this thing. And you see, like, that was the most meaningful part of their lives. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just think I think that's really fascinating. Um, and aside from that, you just get, like, kind of these, these nuggets of wisdom. People drop some, like, pretty serious one-liners sometimes <laughs> in legacy interviews. And you're like, sometimes you just have to hit the space bar, pause it, and be like whoa, 
that was intense. <laughs> and like, uh, yeah, you just you take note of those things because it's the front row seat to some pretty serious wisdom. Yeah, so, I remember it being asked one time, like you sat and did, you know, six hours of listening to people tell their stories. I'm like, this is the greatest movie that this person could possibly create, right? They <laughs> sat yeah. down and they built their life and like they and every person in the legacy interviews had they don't know they're telling a story of change but they're always telling stories oh of change. totally yeah like they like they don't they don't sit there thinking like oh i want to articulate this lesson through this thing but they're always like and that's how i learned this way that i thought before didn't work or that i thought i could get away with this but i couldn't well and see going back to like story structure being about change i think that the reason that that resonates when we do it in the artificial form is because that is the rhythm of life. And so it's that's why we recognize it and that's why we value it. It's interesting. Yeah, and I think like when you're in the first person perspective of change, mm-hmm. it's really hard to even point your finger towards like, oh, I'm changing right now or oh, I just changed, right? Yeah. It's only when you look back that you're like, oh, this mistake that I made over and over and over and over again, it finally got painful enough for me to do something different. (laughs) And the pain is the story, right? The pain is like the, ooh, that's what happens. Totally, yeah. And like whenever we write drama, like it's, that's exactly it. It's like, how do we make this person's life as terrible as possible? (laughs) Like like in this, in the context of whatever story we're telling and like push it to the limit. Um, Because yeah, we, we identify with that. I also think that an interesting factor of doing these has been things that people come in initially embarrassed of, right? And they're mm-hmm. like, you can tell that they're nervous to talk about this thing, but it was either really important in their lives or it was something that happened to them. And like, they think I've already worked this out. I know that this is something I should be embarrassed of or something that I had to work through or something that I don't want other people to know. Mm-hmm. But as they have articulated this story, they themselves are learning something out of that story that's like they've never thought of because they've never told it out loud before or they've never or if they did tell it out loud, it was like to their spouse as they were experiencing it. But like it's not fun to go back to the bankruptcy or the you know, challenges you had with your child. But then you go back and you're like, ah, but that's how we. That's how we did it. And not that everybody's stories end, you know, with a bow on them. Right. But they always end with a, and that's how I learned this thing. Like I changed or I do this thing now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People always kind of, at least least from what I've seen, like people always kind of have like a lesson learned from even the hardest times and, and they can sort of see you kind of see it happening on their faces sometimes, like putting the pieces together, like you said, connecting the dots and um, realizing, I guess, like how this trying experience sort of brought them to where they are. You know, I never really thought about it, but like, it's funny because I'll ask questions when when things get a little heavy, right? And you need to like bring it up. I'll ask, tell me about a joyful time or tell me about a time, you know, when things were going great. Like they really struggle. Like if you're like, oh, tell me about a time when 
everything was joyful and, and going yeah, well. Yeah, that is totally true. They say all the time, like, oh, we had them, but um, I'm trying to think of one. Yeah, or like, how do I just pick one? <laughs> you right. know, because you're just sort of cycling through all these, like, like blurry amalgamation of happiness from different <laughs> times. You know, it's it's like I'm sort of blending like all these Christmases and things together in my head. <laughs> yeah, but the one Christmas where things all went haywire and you're like, ooh, that, that one went bad. Yeah. That you, that you, you remember. are able to pick that, that out. That you remember. That's yeah. super interesting. I had never thought of that until now. I wonder if that's because like in our brains, like, like as we're going through life, it's like kind of like touching the stove, right? It's like you touch the stove once and you're like, oh gosh, I can't do that again. Right. You know, and I, I think when we experience pain, even if it's more complex types of pain, uh, we, our brains, that like digs into our brain because we're like, we need to avoid this. We can't do this again. Yeah, because you're, when you experience pain, your brain is like, what do I need to do to make it stop? Yeah. And what do I need to do to make sure it doesn't happen again? Right. And then you get this like, as you figure that out, you get this rush of dopamine. And if you've gone through a phase of suffering where things were not going well, mm-hmm. then the release of like, ah, I figured out how to get past that. Even if the like I figured out how to get past that was really pretty terrible. Like, yeah, at least in my own life, I can think of like that's interesting. All those experiences where you're like. It wasn't fun to figure it out, but I did figure it out and I get this release of dopamine. I mean, like, that's why the exploration of self, right? When you're like, why did this thing happen? And and particularly if you ask the question, why did this happen? And how am I responsible for why this happened? Right? Like, because like when you can finally figure out why you were responsible at first, it's like, ooh, I did that thing and you wince. But then you have the like, okay, well, at least now I know. But it is hard to go have that level of self-reflection because you have to experience the pain and you're not sure you're going to get that big dopamine rush from discovery. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably like, this is fascinating. I think maybe that's like a reason, at least for myself, like I'm sometimes hesitant to do things that I know are good for me or or that I suspect will be good for me (laughs) because there isn't a guarantee. And you're like, I don't know, this is going to be painful. What if it doesn't pay off in the way that I want? Then it's just like pain for nothing. (laughs) Yeah. But I think we're constantly making those calculations somewhere always like digging deep enough. Like, like, uh, you know, we were joking before the interview started about like what was going to be my opening question. And, uh, you and I joked about like, well, it could be about the worst breakups you ever had, right? Mm-hmm. But those breakups, like when you really look back on them, there is something where you're like, not necessarily that you did wrong, but like, where did this not match up? And when did I stop noticing? Like, when was I being naive? When did I not see what I needed to see? And in a breakup, like it can be years before you're able to like look back on that experience and be like, Oh, she was cheating on me that whole time. And I just, (laughs) I just didn't, I just didn't know, but I should have known. And by learning that hard lesson, then it doesn't happen again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it's totally, uh, self-reflection kind of a big deal. How do you write about self-reflection in a screenplay so that the audience knows there's an internal dialogue going on? 
interesting. Interesting question. So like with what rhymes with reason, I'll use that as an example. Um, we, so the main character, he's, he's in a bout of depression and he is experiencing suicidal thoughts. So we're like, okay, how do we, how do we show that? Like without him just talking about it or like, you know, you could jump to the cliches of, you know, he could, yeah, I don't know. Have a dream sequence or. Yeah. Something like that. Or, you know, be like, pick up like a, a bottle of pills or something and he's kind you know but that's like again talking about like we don't want to be that on the nose about it that feels really dark that feels a little insensitive it feels a little cliche um so like how are we going to do this and what we came up with was uh he he basically has these moments where he's sort of like is transported out of whatever you know situation he's in and he's just in this like dark void and there is uh, a locker so like in the beginning of the movie you see at his school there's a locker of a classmate that took his own life and you know it's like decorated you know with notes from friends and all this stuff when jesse the main character goes to the void he sees the same locker but it's his photo and that was that was kind of a breakthrough. I, I think that it works. We've gotten some good feedback about it, but it's a, it's a way to show like this is on his mind without talk, without saying it, you know, or without being like graphic or violent or, or explicit, you know what I mean? Um, and so you're kind of putting those pieces together. And that, that was like, that was our way of showing that and I think that that's the trick, right? Is like so, like if you want to tell a story about internal monologue, about you know someone really getting into the nitty gritty of their like self reflection, maybe write a novel. <laughs> yeah, because novels you know, really are that way, right? Yeah, that you right. can transfer around. I can be like, hey, what's going on in Sean's head? Now what's going on in Vance's head? Yeah, and it's indistinguishable from when the dialogue is going on. Yeah, but for for movies, you have to translate things into again, like these visceral sensory terms, these visual and, and auditory terms. So uh, that's why a lot of like people complain about oh, the, the book was better than the movie when, when they adapt something. And a lot of times that's why is because like you're, you're getting all this context in a book that you don't get in a movie, like this internal context. And a lot of books are like, they really hang their hat on that. And the, a movie just can't. That's not its function. That's not what the form excels at. And so when you when you lose that, you just you get something else. It's just not as satisfying. There's a YouTube channel. I'm sure you've seen it called Lessons from the Screenplay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love that. one. And the one that like it's excellent, you know, show. But like he does one where he does Gone Girl. Mm-hmm. And they, he does a really great job of describing how in a movie you can do things that would be difficult to do in a book or you'd have to do it in a different way, which is it's the um, the protagonist that, that everybody thinks has killed his wife goes and finds the guy that who ultimately his wife kills and frame, you know, acts like was stealing. But he says, I want to I, the, the, the movie wants to show that there is a big divide between them. Mm-hmm. And the way that they do it is he comes to his front door and instead of him opening the gate that's between them, 
he leaves it shut and they talk through the gate, right? So there's like yeah. a very physical thing there. Mm -hmm. And it was really striking to me because so much of that goes on in movies and I'm sure you perceive it, Yeah. but you are not having the actual dialogue with yourself like, oh, he didn't open the screen, therefore there's something between them, but you feel it in the same way that you do in real life. Like if I'm sitting here, right, like with my arms crossed, you maybe don't even necessarily, now you do, but like you might not have noticed that I was doing it, but you'd be like, man, Vance feels really closed off and cold today. Yeah, totally. Yeah, body language and and yeah, just the visual language of, of movies is, is fascinating. John Carpenter, director, uh, directed like Halloween and Big Trouble in Little China and like all these classic movies. But he said movies is just, it's making the mental physical, oh. um, which is, very simple but it's pretty profound and it's totally true that that's the trick of it right and like that's hopefully what what we did and what rhymes with reason uh, but yeah that that is the trick so you have talked about wanting to have you know a whole filmography um, uh -huh. are you do you want to be in one genre do you have like a certain type of movie or do you what what is it that you would like to be creating <laughs> it's funny that you ask that because that's like whenever you tell people you're a screenwriter, at least in L.A., this was the case. You mentioned you're a screenwriter. People are like, oh, what kind of stuff do you write? Uh, because people want to put other people in boxes, right? We put everything into boxes. And what I what I ended up telling people is like I like uh, kids fighting monsters. Um, and that is a lot of what I have written, kind of like Stranger Things-esque stuff you know and um i love et and i love jurassic park and things like this but uh i think it's really it is really broader than that though for me um i don't i don't really have a great answer i, I think coming of age stories are something that i always gravitate toward but i want to that's not always with kids or teenagers i think We've talked about this and you kind of see it in legacy interviews too. It's like people are always coming of age because in every phase of life, like you think you've got it licked and then something else happens and you're like, oh, I've never done this before. Never, never been a parent, never been a grandparent, you know, never sent a kid to school. Like you, you're, just, you're constantly evolved. I've never been fired before. That came out of nowhere. Um, I've never been single as an, as a, you know, 55 year old man. Yeah. Right, exactly. So you're always coming of age. And so I think um, that interests me. That interests me a lot. Um, as far as genre, I like I like everything. And I kind of want to do a little bit of everything. Uh, I, like, I like to have fun, though, when I'm watching movies. Like, I can appreciate anything, but at the end of the day, I like fun. Watching movies with you is unlike any experience I've ever had with another person in that you are so free to laugh. You like you even if you're I've, I've walked past the room when you're watching a movie and I've heard you laughing to yourself, which I think is rare. But when you're with somebody else, you're like sitting there laughing. And like, I don't know if it's just my, not my culture or what, but like something has to be really funny for me to laugh out loud. And yeah. That's interesting. I mean, like, I think that's a lot of people, though. And like, I've watched movies with a lot of people or even like significant others where like I'm laughing, they're not. And I'm like, oh, gosh, 
they must not be enjoying the movie. <laughs> and then I asked them after, and they're like, no, I liked it. I thought it was funny. It just wasn't like, you know, laugh out loud funny. And I was like, I don't understand what you're saying to me. Yeah, because you laugh like, <laughs> like throughout the entire movie. Yeah, like. I like to laugh. Laughing is fun. <laughs> the other thing that you do is you go to a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. Like I try, yeah. So why? Why is that something you put so much effort into? I think that it doesn't really matter what the movie is. Watching it at the movie theater is the best way to watch it. That's just that's just the reality. Watching it on a big screen with loudspeakers is the best way to watch any movie. <laughs> um, and there's just something really powerful about uh, and absorbing about the big screen and the dark room and the fact that everybody's going to stop talking. We're not going to pause it. We're just going to experience this together. Uh, and you're experiencing it with strangers too, which like some people think is annoying. And sometimes it is if those people are annoying. But uh, I think a lot of times it's just really cool, especially horror movies at the theater are a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. But but even a drama, just like a straight drama. I, I went and saw this movie called Past Lives a few weeks ago. It's just a straight, you know, like relationship drama. But like watching it on the big screen is so much more absorbing and powerful. I walked out of there with tears in my eyes. Just like that, that was such a powerful experience. And I think it also like weirdly mimics, uh, and this is not an original thought, but it weirdly mimics like sitting around the campfire and telling stories to each other because you're like in this dark place and there's just like this single source of light and everybody's just fixated on this one story that's unfolding. And it's like just a more technologically advanced <laughs> version of that, which is kind of cool. I think it's excellent. I like, I you know, you and I come at things from very different angles, but I hear you coming to, to things about movies and you just you're not um, jaded about it. And I feel like mm. it's so easy to be like, ah, oh, movies aren't as good as they used to be. And oh, like, I, I don't know. I don't go to the theater. Da, da, da. Yeah. But, like you're not that way at all. Well, uh, thanks. <laughs> but, but I think, so I hear this a lot um, and I say it too, you know, like the movies aren't as good as they used to be kind of thing or like not, there's no original movies anymore. And that that's what I hear from people more often. And I, a lot of people, even people that are like casual moviegoers, they're not like in the film industry and they're not like movie buffs. They just watch movies sometimes. Comes to me and they're like, so where do I get like a good movie? <laughs> you know, like an original movie. Cause I'm like, I, I'm not into like the superhero thing and I don't, I don't wanna watch Star Wars or anything like this. Um, and I'm scrolling through Netflix and it just looks like a bunch of junk or whatever. Like where, where do I get a good movie? And the thing is like, there are lots of really good movies and a really original movies being made, but uh, you, it takes a little bit of work to go find them, right? Because like what, what we see is like the superheroes and the space epics and Fast and the Furious and all this stuff because that's where the marketing dollars are. There's like hundreds of millions of marketing dollars, like making sure that we're aware of these things. Um, but then you have movies like Past Lives, which I just mentioned, which not a ton of people saw, but is to me like one of the best movies of the year and very original and very powerful story. So um, yeah, it, it takes a little bit of effort to go and find these things, but they are there. And I 
I want to circle that back to what rhymes with reason too. Just a little plug. Like uh, our movie comes out in the theater for one night only on October 10th. Um, it's being released through Fathom Events, which is a uh, Fathom Events is like a partnership between AMC, Regal, and Cinemark theaters. Uh, it's basically a way for them to like fill their <laughs> theaters. But they show lots of like classic movies. They show lots of animation, and they show inspirational films, which is the category that our movie falls under. Um, and it it is an event. It is one night only, um, but the theatrical experience is really valuable and supporting independent films at the theater is really valuable. And if you are a person who's like, I'm tired of the same old Hollywood garbage or whatever, or I'm just looking for something original, money is the only thing that that Hollywood, that's the only language that they speak, right? So it's like the way that you make a change is by changing what you support and supporting independent films is a way for those things to become more viable. And uh, likewise, like not supporting the things that you're tired of (laughs) is the way to uh, make those things go away. Yeah, man, ever since you told me about this, like, and, and the fact that you guys got in, it was really cool. But the, these, in theaters all over the country, they open them up like on a like for years. It's a Tuesday night, October tenth, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and like, hey, we're gonna play this movie all over the country, and you know, people can find tickets to it, and yeah. people can go to this movie that they would n- not otherwise see, and they'd have to wait for it to come out on streaming, and then it'd be buried among a bunch of things. And like, you guys got chosen to be one of these videos that gets played in all these theaters all over the country. I like, I've been excited about it ever since. Like my, I have a buddy that's releasing like a, a real movie that's yeah. going out on big screen. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be awesome. And again, like I already kind of gave my spiel about why the theatrical experience is so important, but watch your movies with your family, watch your movies with your friends uh, is a powerful thing. And so we have a way, again, we kind of created this movie to be like, the ultimate youth group movie. It's it's like a, a movie that teenagers will actually want to go watch, um, that families can go see together, like a, a church or a school would be comfortable showing, you know? And so like, we have ways to do that. Um, I've got, we have our website. It's just uh, wrwrfilm.com. Uh, if you find me on Instagram or if you can find the movie on Instagram, like we have links in our bios to our website into places to get tickets and places to book group tickets. So you can get your youth group together. You can get a school group together. You can even have it shown at your church or at your school. If that's something that you're interested in, there are ways to set that up. Um, so yeah, it's, it is an event. Like it's a really cool thing. And we're just trying to get as many people as we can out there to see it and, and, enjoy it together and it's a fun movie too like we've we talked a lot about like the serious elements but like it is fun it's an adventure there's there's lots of comedy elements to it and uh it's a fun movie to watch with a group of people so the more people you get to go see it uh the more fun you'll have have you picked out what theater you're gonna watch it in Yes, uh, I, I'm going to go see it in my hometown of Springfield, Missouri at the AMC Theater there. Uh, and I'm trying to set up a, a way to do like a Q&A there. Just as kind of a special thing for my 
my hometown. So. Oh man, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I am definitely going to go see it and, uh, I'll watch it, uh, in the movie theater and this will be the first time I've been to a movie theater and probably, I don't know, maybe 10 years. I don't know. Like a long time. What? Maybe not, maybe not 10, but, but not quite as long as I've been married, but I think Annie and I have only gone to see maybe like three movies since wow. we've been married. But, um, yeah, but I'm excited about it, and uh, and I'll put all of the I'll put a link to the to the trailer, which is fun. And, yeah, yeah, uh, for and, sure. And like where to buy tickets down in the show notes. Fantastic! Well, oh, that's so exciting, <laughs> Sean. Man, thank you so much for coming on. And thank you. Uh, this thank is you. great. You know, actually, like one last thing, like you've made a huge difference with legacy interviews. Like uh, you came in and. You know, you watched what we were doing. You'd been an editor from afar for a while, but like you came in and were like, hey, I think we can make these upgrades. I think we can make these changes. And our whole team has gotten better. And, and yeah, I, I love what we're producing even more than what we were doing before. And I just thank you, man. I'm so glad to have you on the team. Well, thank you. I really, really, from the bottom of my heart, appreciate the opportunity. It's, it's been a big deal for me. It's really cool. And I get to do cool stuff like this. So yeah, this is man. awesome. <laughs> All right. Thanks for coming on. Thank you.